Hello everyone and welcome back to season two, episode three of the Simply Adulting podcast. Thank you guys for coming back and for joining us. Um, As you can see, our setup is a little bit different today. We're doing something different and um, yeah, I think you guys are really going to like it. And uh, Amu, would you like to tell us what it is that we're doing different today? Awesome. Hello, everyone. Welcome back. Welcome back. So, guys, today is quite a different episode, um, like Dee explained. We have a guest by the name of Heather Kent, who is a registered psychotherapist with a training background in trauma assessment and treatment. She is also the best-selling author of the books Heal from Your Narcissist Ex and I Left My Toxic Relationship. Now what? So... It's going to be a good, good one. I'm excited. How are you feeling, Dee? I'm excited. Um, Yeah, I'm excited. We've never done an interview before, and it's also, like, really full circle. But you'll hear more about it in the episode. Yeah. So, guys, get your hat on. Oh, also, another thing is, what inspired this? Because our very first episode, if you go back and watch the first episode, uh, (laughs) was actually about being in a relationship with a narcissist. Mm-hmm. So I think getting more information from a professional is so much better than, you know, just us maybe talking, but actually getting a bigger, better perspective from a professional. So it's huge. Yeah, it is. So are you ready? We're ready. Let's are you ready? do this. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's go. See you guys soon. Bye. Welcome to the Simply Adulting Podcast, a community created by myself, Dee, and my co-host, Amul, to share, reflect, and dissect issues affecting us while coming out inspired. We are available on all platforms, including YouTube, for video content. For now, sit back and enjoy. certain sort of subtype of narcissism 
And so what the, what they state is that, you know, the person is displaying a grandiose, you know, sense of self and like really over the top and wanting to be the center of attention and wanting to talk about how great they are and all of their accomplishments and all that sort of thing. Um, and I'm sure we can all imagine someone that we may, that may come to mind who is really good at that in, uh, yeah. uh-huh, in our uh, political world. And so this is absolutely true, but it's not the only way in which narcissism presents itself. And so that's why I don't love, you know, the American uh, Psychological Association sort of definition of like, this is what a person has to have to be diagnosed, because it excludes a lot of other subtypes of narcissism that are equally as, you know, toxic and damaging, (laughs) that often kind of fly under the radar a little bit more. Um, and so, yeah, the grandiosity is, is kind of the more hallmark thing that we might know. It's certainly something that gets displayed a lot in public. It's what we see on television, that kind of thing. Um, but these other lesser obvious types, I think, are really important for us to look at because we might not realize that this is what we're dealing with if we don't have an, if we don't have an awareness of them, right? So we have... So this is called a grandiose narcissist, what I just described. It's someone who loves to be the center of attention, someone who really likes to talk about themselves and thinks that they're fantastic. Um, and then on the sort of very kind of opposite side of that spectrum, we have what we would call a covert or um, a narcissist. Um, and this person hates to be in the center of attention, does not want to draw attention to themselves at all, because they are so terrified of receiving criticism or any kind of negative judgment or feedback and they cannot, their their fragile egos cannot tolerate that. And so, you know, it's really interesting because a, a grandiose narcissist reports high levels of happiness, reports things being great in their relationships, even though they're not. But they're just so delusional. They think everything's fantastic all the time, even though their partners might be really unhappy, or you know they really don't have a lot of people who genuinely like them. But they don't have the awareness to be able to really see that. They think everything's great, so they report high levels of happiness and thinking everything's fantastic. Whereas a covert narcissist reports high levels of depression, lots of anxiety. Um, they have very unstable relationships. They they, you know, they, they harbor that inner grandiosity where they're like comparing themselves to others and like really that whole keeping up with the Joneses and mm-hmm. making sure that they have to, they have to per- perform and show this sort of outward picture, everything being great because again, they, they don't want to draw attention and that things might not be great because then they're going to, that, that perceived judgment and that stress of being, of being negatively viewed is something that they can't deal with. And so it's really interesting because they share the same hallmark traits, which is, you know, thinking that they're better than others, needing to compare themselves to others, lots of envy, lots of jealousy, um, not having empathy. So the hallmark of a narcissistic personality versus other personality disorders is that they do not have empathy. They, they feel no empathy for others. So they, they're kind of thinking about how what they do or say could impact others is not a consideration. Like it just doesn't, it does not fly across the radar at all. And then even if that's pointed out to them, it doesn't matter. <laughs> they're still going to do it anyway. And it's your problem, not theirs kind of thing. Yeah. Um, and so... You know, this the the covert narcissist is less obvious because they also are suffering from these other kind of comorbid anxiety issues, depression issues. Often there's like addictions happening and that sort of stuff too. Um, and then we have a really, really tricky one to see, which is what I ended up with, and this is called a communal narcissist. Oh. And a communal narcissist is someone who is a fantastic member of society. They're highly social, they're very friendly, they get along well with everyone, you know, people are drawn to them, they're charismatic, um, they're volunteering, they're coaching the hockey team or the football team, and they're donating money 
sets in the community and they're helping their neighbors build a fence and all of this, you know, wonderful stuff. But the motivation behind all of those wonderful things is not to be, you know, a good person and to give back to humanity. It is to be recognized for the good deeds that they're doing. And so they need to be viewed. Again, all of this external validation, right, is this is what is required for them. Like, they need this constant supply of validation. And so the motivations behind the actions of these wonderful good things is to be viewed and recognized and given accolades for all of these good deeds and be known as, like, the best good person out there. Okay. But then when you go home, all of the abuse and manipulation and gaslighting and everything else is still happening behind the scenes. But everyone outside thinks that they're great. So, you know, I cannot tell you how many times I was told, Heather, you are so lucky. You know, you're such a great guy. You have such an amazing husband. He's so amazing. Like, I just can't believe how lucky you are. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, you know, and he is. He is a great friend. He's very reliable for everybody else. And then when you're, you know, in a in a home relationship, an intimate relationship with these people, it's a completely different story, right? And so it's very night and day, very Jekyll and Hyde situation. Mm-hmm. And then finally, we have probably the most sort of dangerous type of narcissist, which is called a malignant, malignant narcissist. Mm-hmm. And this type borders on that sociopathic, like psychopathic kind of mm-hmm. triangle. We call it because it's part of the dark triad. Because they really, what makes them a little bit a step above the rest is that they gain like pleasure from other people's suffering, and they make it their mission to like destroy someone, and they will stop at nothing until it happens, mm. and they gain, they actually get like joy from that, and so that's what kind of makes them on that you know sociopathic like psychopathy kind of edge. Um, because they, the antisocial behaviors are, are a lot more prevalent. Mm-hmm. So, to answer your question, <laughs> there's, there's kind of four major sort of types of, of different sorts of narcissistic personalities that are out there. And unfortunately, most of them go undiagnosed. Yeah. Wow. wow. Yeah. That is so interesting. It really is. I had no idea. <laughs> and it's such a broad <laughs> spectrum, too. Um, so yeah. when when you're like someone at home, just in terms of these spectrums um, and, you know, these um, personality types that you mentioned were like difficult to kind of see, um, how would you, how would you know, for example, that this person was a covert narcissist as opposed mm. to just being someone who is shy or someone who's just um, never came out of their shell, who's just an anxious person? Um, and how do you know, you know, like if you feel like you were hearing some of these descriptions and you were like, oh, I'm a little shy. I need a lot of validation from people. Am I a narcissist too? Um. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's a really good question, but I'll give you an, I'll give you, um, a really, uh, hopefully helpful tip. Yeah. If you, if you have the reflective ability to ask yourself, oh, maybe I, am I a narcissist? You're not one. Okay. <laughs> Because you're, you see, because you're you're being self-reflective, you're checking yourself, you're like, oh, Um, whereas a person with narcissistic personality disorder has no awareness, has no reflective abilities, does not check in with themselves, does not have the, like, again, they can't look at themselves in the mirror in any kind of real way, and they avoid people who do, which is why when, say, you end a relationship with them, whether it be a professional one or you know a personal one, mm-hmm. they make it very difficult for you, and they you know it becomes a very ugly scene very quickly most of the time, mm-hmm. um, because you are then exposing them for mm-hmm. having some kind of flaw, right? And you're the reminder for them that you know what they really are, mm-hmm. and that's dangerous for them, right? Mm-hmm. So so it's threatening. And so, um, they don't, again, they don't do any kind of self-reflection. Everything is everybody else's fault. They're always a victim. Um, if you call someone out on 
abusive behavior, there's always an excuse for why it's okay, or they'll blame you for why they reacted that way. And this is, again, like part of the gaslighting. So you're too sensitive. You're taking it too seriously. You're overreacting. Mm-hmm. If you're a woman, you're PMSing. Um, I never said that. That never happened. You're imagining things. You're crazy. That must have been a dream you had. You were drinking too much. You're not remembering things, remembering things clearly. Um, or they'll be like, well, the only reason I did that is because you did this. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, you made me do that, mm-hmm. right? So there's never any accountability. There's never any responsibility. Um, and often they, you know, will give you lots of fodder for them to be portrayed as like this poor victim who, you know, um, does nothing, does nothing wrong. Um, and so we all, every single human being on the planet, we all possess some, some narcissistic tendencies here and there and now and again. Um, but there's a difference, like I said, between having some tendencies and having, again, like the hallmark components of, you know, no empathy, inability to think about others, only ever putting yeah. your needs first, <laughs> that kind of thing. And so, um, and like not being able to take any personal responsibility for your actions. So yeah. these are the hallmark kind of features. And so those are the pieces that you look out for. And that's not obvious in the beginning of a relationship, <clears throat> right? Like if you go through this cycle, at the very beginning, <clears throat> you are in this like idealization phase. We call this love bombing. Mm. And they're just so mm. enthralled with you and they're so amazing and they're so attentive and they're so charismatic and they're just like all over wanting to spend time with you and talking to you and getting to know you and they're just they're mirroring back everything that you give to them. And so you're like, wow, this person is so like in tune with me and they get me and I've never felt so special and, you know, all this future faking and making plans and, you know, I don't know what I'd do without you. They're professing love very quickly, all that sort of stuff, right? And you're just like, God, this is my person, you know? Um, and then that tends, then that unravels kind of slowly over time. Mm. Um, and so, but not until after a point we've felt some level of commitment that we feel like we, you know, feel sorry for them. We want to help them. We want to be supportive because we are kind, empathic, compassionate people who are excellent at forgiveness. Yeah. Yeah. Which is exactly what they look for. And a person who, who they need to get some supply from. Wow. Oh. Exactly. So how do you know when you are in a relationship with a narcissist? Are they general telltale signs? Oh, to yeah. That, okay, I am now dealing with a narcissist. Yeah, so um, in, in the work that I do, um, I actually kind of came up with a little bit of a, like a little bit of a, it's like, it's like, I mean, and I, you know, I say partner, but it really could be anyone. Like, it could be my mom, is my neighbor, is my boss, is my coworker, whatever, is my whoever. But in this case, you know, I'm, I'm talking about partners. Is my partner a narcissist? So it's like a little bit of a, of a quiz, you know. So mm-hmm. I'm gonna, re- I'll run through these questions. Okay. So here, so here we go. Okay. So we would ask, okay, is my person a narcissist? Mm-hmm. Does this person experience an exaggerated sense of self-importance? Do they think, you know, or expect other people to think that they're more important than they actually are? Do they require constant admiration from others? Do they expect total compliance from others? Do they just expect everyone to do as they say and to listen to them and not, you know, put up any fight and not challenge them? Do they struggle, and here we go, this is the big one, do they struggle to recognize the emotions and needs of other people? Mm. Does this person ever expect special treatment or favors from others, even if they don't warrant them? Do they just expect other people to just roll out the red carpet and do whatever they want them to do? Do they ever experience heightened jealousy about the success of others? So there's that comparison stuff. Do they insist on having the best of everything? So what? Great car, beautiful 
you know? <laughs> yeah. Wow. That's like, it, it kind of brings me back to that first episode that we were talking about and um, kind of just confirming, like, how, you know, Amu and I were talking about being in relationships with narcissists before. And, you know, for me, it's just like, oh my gosh, yes, 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 yes. <laughs> so, yeah, that's quite interesting. Yeah, and I think a lot of us, when we're in them, because we're just in kind of this survival mode, mm-hmm. it's really hard to see what's happening, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, a lot of women, and, and a few men, like, I, I've helped men through this too, and like I said, my, my partner is a survivor um, of a narcissistic relationship, like her partner. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, it's, it's really hard to see what's happening when you're in it because you're just in this survival mode, right? You're just getting through the day and you're just trying to rationalize and make sense of things to like, to make it okay just for you so you can keep going, you know, mm-hmm. day, day to day. And then people from the outside are like, you know, if they have any sense of what's happening, which sometimes people don't, right? But then you're like, you know, why, why are you with this person? to other women that he had been with in the past and 
very much making it seem like I wasn't, you know, good enough or, you know, giving him enough or whatever. And, you know, he's flirting with other women, continuing to stay in touch with people that he used to date. He actually, you know, cheated on me a few times. I caught him with someone and he was still like trying to deny that, you know, I didn't see it properly, that I misunderstood, you know, whatever. Um, and so these things all happened like in the first year of our relationship. Um, but I was, again, like because of the manipulation that had happened, you know, fairly quickly, I felt compelled to like, if I try harder or it will get better or, you know, I really care about this person and I want to be as, hopefully it's going to get better. Um, but you know, it, it was really quite terrible, um, for a long time. And he had a bit of a, an addiction as well to pornography. And that was a huge degrading, um, aspect again of the comparison to me, not enough and all that sort of thing. So those were like really big things that, that took place. And eventually I did, I broke it off and I, we were engaged at this point and I gave back his one night he just didn't come home. And I was just like, okay, that's it. I can't. Like, it turned me into a crazy person because I was always wondering, where is he? Who is he with? Like, what is he doing? And that's not who I don't. It was awful to live this way. So I, I said, I can't. I'm done. Like, here's your ring back. I'm sorry, I can't. And that should have been the end. Mm. But it wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> um, I did manage to, you know, be free of that for like six months or so. Um, and then at Christmas time, of course, um, we were both back at home, you know, in our home comments and he showed up at my house. He came to my parents' house and he put on this very well rehearsed performance, um, heartfelt performance in front of my entire family and drew us all back in, which was very important to him. Um, he had to have my family on side as well. And so we got back together, we got engaged again, we ended up getting married the next year. Um, and I think like the, the infidelity piece, I think, did settle down. But the manipulation and psychological abuse, and like that continued throughout. And that, it actually, that part was the part that intensified over time. And it was, you know, I had colleagues and coworkers who were like, they saw him, how he treated me, was that things that he would say to me if they were like just hanging out and visiting, you know, at my house. And they'd be like, I can't believe he just said that to you, or I can't believe he just did that. And, and I was like, What are you talking about? He's in a great mood. Like, it's totally fine. Like, I have, I don't understand why you're, they're like, I would never put up with that. And, and I'm looking at them going, like, Relax. It's totally fine. Like, there's no, um, and so that was kind of how I started to see because other people were like, no, this is not okay. And at first I was like, no, 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 like you, you don't understand him. Like it's fine. Um, but there was one incident that happened where he left me downtown by myself in a snowstorm with no money and no coat and no way to get home. And we lived half an hour away from, from where we were. And so I was abandoned, um, at a staff party, uh, downtown because he was embarrassed and I started to cry when the people at the establishment had lost my coat and like my phone was in it, my money, like my ID, everything was in it. Yeah. Um, and I was upset that they lost my coat and, you know, I wasn't going to get all this stuff back. And then he, I had embarrassed him, so he took off and got in a taxi and went home without me. And so, yeah, so that was sort of yeah. everything. <laughs> That was the beginning of the end. Um, and then he started to push me to want to have children. And there was something very visceral in the depths of my body that was like, no, no, no. This terrible idea. Um, and so I was not comfortable, but he was like, you know, what's your problem? Like we've been married three years. Like we need to, we need to get on this. We need to get on board. We need to have kids. And if you don't have kids with me now, then we're done. He would threaten the relationship all the time and he threatened it when we first started dating and he was threatening to leave if I didn't have kids on his timeline. So when I was resisting, he got my family on, on the on side. So he called them up and he was like, I don't know what's wrong with her. Like you guys need to talk some sense into her. So then my family is pressuring me to have kids with him. Like, what are you waiting for? Like, blah, blah, blah. Cause again, 
again, I couldn't go through them knowing everything that was going on because I couldn't deal with them hating him. Like, I just I couldn't deal. Mm-hmm. So they didn't know that things still weren't good. So they had no reason not to, like, believe what he was saying, right? So, so then when that didn't work, um, he then decided to come up with a story that I had cheated on him and that I was running around and sleeping with a bunch of different men and he called my family who were in a different country and told them that I had lost my mind and had a psychiatric break. I need serious help because I was, you know, running around having sex with all these different men and that I completely lost it and, you know, he doesn't know what to do and I need help. So my family, and he did this when I was at work, and so, I don't know, I called them to just say hello. They wouldn't get on the phone. They wouldn't talk to me. And I didn't know why. And so it was very <laughs> confusing because, you know, in in my mind, it was because I had done this terrible thing. And what happened was I was at a friend's place telling them about this pressure to have kids thing. And my friend's brother was visiting and came up to me in the kitchen said, I can't believe that that asshole is doing that to you, like, blah, 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 and he kissed me. And I was like, oh, God, oh, no. Like, that's not that. So when I told him about about that, because I was terrified he'd find out another way, this is what he used to spin his story oh. as I'm sleeping with a bunch of men. And so I was thinking that they were, you know, not refusing to talk to me because this person had kissed me. So, meanwhile, they thought that I was some, like, nymphomaniac that had totally lost her life, um, you know, and was being so unfaithful and terrible to her husband. And my dad, the only thing that happened, my dad got on the phone and he said, you need to be a better wife to to him, and, like, you need to settle down. What is your problem? And, like, I just felt so awful and so alone. My mom, like, my sister and my mom would not get on the phone for, like, a week. And I... You know, this whole time I'm like totally tortured thinking like, oh my God, I'm such a terrible person because this kiss thing happened. And so then he, you know, made me go to therapy with him, um, which then he tried to shame me in front of the therapist, but the therapist, I think, could see what was happening. Mm -hmm. So at one point she pulled me aside and she was like, I need to talk to you alone. And then she said, you need to leave. This is not healthy. You need to get out. And so, like, that was, like, the kind of slap in the face <laughs> that I needed to, to like, to really, the couple's therapist is telling me I need to leave my relationship. <laughs> yeah. It must be bad, you know. Um, <laughs> so then finally, you know, my sister talked to me later, and she said some detail, and that made me ask her, what are you talking about? And then it came out this wild story that they had been given. Right? And then my poor mom, like, she, to this day, still doesn't forgive herself for, like, you know, abandoning me in that moment. But I'm like, it's not your fault. You were manipulated mm-hmm. by him, which is what they do. Mm-hmm. Um, and, like, this is not, you, in no way are you to blame for what happened because yeah. this is what I've been dealing with for, like, eight years. Right? Yeah. So that's how things unraveled, and it got very, very ugly in the yeah. end. Wow, like I find it so interesting that um, your family didn't like him in the beginning and he was able to manipulate his way also into your family. And um, yeah. like yeah. kind of like the, the base of a lot of the things that were going on were very performative. Like it was either performing Absolutely. to your family or to your friends or to the therapist. It's always a performance. Mm-hmm. Wow. Mm-hmm. And not to mention, he's the volunteer and the coach and this and the yeah. that. And, you know, he, mm. yeah. yeah, so it becomes so difficult to actually even be able to have the, the to say to yourself, okay, I need to leave. Because how do you even bring something like that up? How do you, yeah, how do you bring it up? So, I mean, I guess that also goes into my next question is just, so how do you, how do you, if you have not recognized that something isn't right, um, even like with, the therapist pulling you aside um, and letting you know that you need to leave. How do you tell your friends, your family, you know, the people closest to you that 
this is what I'm going through and, you know, I want to leave. And of course, if they don't see that side and they're just like, no, he's amazing. What are you talking about? You're crazy. Yeah, it's really hard. It's really, really hard. Um, and like, sometimes it's having to give them like specific examples, but you have such like confused, fragmented memory because of the psychological abuse. It's very hard to, to contextualize and it's hard to put things in order it's hard because your brain has chemically changed so that the part of your brain that's responsible for memory and, and organization and whatever that part of your brain shrinks as a result of prolonged exposure so it's really hard to verbalize what's happening to mm. people um and then the part of your brain that you know that that alarm system that we have that keeps us alive like run run the tigers are coming mm. um that part of our brain actually the, gets larger and, and it's overactive. And so we're, that's not, you know, we're constantly, you know, walking on eggshells and waiting for something bad to happen. And, and so it's, it's very, very hard to, to, you know, verbalize that to someone. Mm. And so, um, what I would recommend is starting to kind of keep a little bit of a journal of the things that happen mm-hmm. and then being able to then show that to people to like your family, whoever it is that you're wanting to talk to about it. And are like, this is, this is what's going on. And this is just a snapshot of like the past decade, five years, two years, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. It, you know, these are the words that are being used. These are the things that he's doing and saying. These are the, you know, ways in which I'm being blamed, whatever. And so keeping a bit of a journal helps with your cognitive dissonance. Like it helps with the confusion. And it also helps to keep track of things, and it also helps to check when he's gaslighting or gaslighting you mm-hmm. as well. Like, when they're trying to manipulate and make it seem like it's your fault, or that what they did or said never happened, you're like, no, no, I wrote it down. It's like it did happen, right? And so it's it's helpful on many fronts. It's also helpful, like from a legal perspective as well, if you're able to kind of start keeping track of things. So that would be how I would kind of help yourself to to talk to people who want to share and like you're reaching out for help um same thing with like going to a therapist on your own like this was the lifesaver for me it was it was like my individual therapy it was her who said like this like this is narcissistic abuse like you're a victim of gaslighting like this is what it looks like so she i didn't know any of these terms you know before Mm -hmm. i saw her um, and so it was all like, and she said, you know, it's, it's had a real impact on you psychologically with like your worth, like your self-worth and like your, um, cause it does, it erodes all of your boundaries and erodes all of your positive beliefs about yourself because you're constantly being bombarded with negative, negative commentary all the time. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. I really like that you mentioned that something actually does happen to your brain because I see what tends to happen is that you think it really is you. Oh, yeah. And a lot of, yeah, you tend to believe that it really is me. I'm the problem. I caused this. And my question is to understanding how it's not you. How do you do the work for healing purposes? Mm -hmm. So you're not out of this relationship. How do you get to you again? How do you fix your, your heart and your brain as well? So that's a very kind of, it's a bit of a journey, you know, it, it's not, it, there are no quick fixes to healing traumatic injuries as, as we might imagine, but for, for sure there are things that you can start to do. And so absolutely engaging in some kind of therapy with someone who understands uh, narcissism or psychological abuse, this is absolutely, if you need to have someone who is like professionally trained to help you to figure this out and look at it and like get insight and help you with awareness, help you identify what your um, symptoms are. Because the other thing is really fascinating is that we develop PTSD as a result of these relationships and we have no idea. We have no idea that we have PTSD. And so a lot of it is, you know, uncovering that and looking at what the symptoms are and then treating those symptoms specifically with like clinical strategies to help you, you know, heal from that and recover from, from those and like what to do when you're triggered by something and that kind of thing. Um, 
very specific trauma-focused work. Um, and then, of course, there's a huge component of, um, like you mentioned, the self-worth piece. And so we do a lot of mindfulness and like self-compassion work and really understanding, like, you know, every woman that I, who I've ever worked with is like, what is wrong with me? How could I let this happen? Why did I stay so long in my case? Why did I go back? How could I be so stupid? You know, I'm an educated person. I can't believe I let this happen. Like lots of guilt and shame that we carry. And so we do a lot of work processing through and letting go of that because it wasn't what was wrong with us mm. that this happened. It was what was right with us yeah. that this happened. We were chosen for all of the wonderful qualities that we have, which also unfortunately make us more susceptible and more vulnerable to being manipulated by these types of people. Mm. And so, um, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Dave? Oh, okay. Um, I was just going to um, say that earlier um, we introduced you as a psychometrist, and that was wrong, right? You're a psychotherapist. Yes. <laughs> um, oh, psychotherapist. Yes, yeah, psychotherapist. <laughs> Sorry about that. Um, okay. Um, yeah. I was going to get around to mentioning that at some point. But yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I'm a, I'm a psychotherapist, so I do, like, the work that I do is, yeah. like, trauma, trauma-focused PTSD like re- recovery specific, like that's my background and training. It's yeah. kind of like this faculty that I have. And yeah. so it just turned out that, you know, all these people were showing up in my practice suffering from these things. And mm-hmm. so it is a process and, you know, therapy is one piece, you know, getting involved in some other kind of community activities, trying to rebuild your network. You quite likely were alienated in the relationship as a result. So it's kind of like a matter of re- rebuilding those relationships that kind of got yeah. caught out because they, they want to isolate you like that's the goal and so making sure that you have some kind of community some kind of support some kind of anyway, and there's going to be people who are well-meaning who care for you but maybe can't understand what you're going through because they haven't been through it themselves so they might say very unhelpful invalidating things sometimes like I don't know why you can't just get over it like it's like it's bad news like just whatever because there's, there's, your brain has been altered. There's a trauma bond that happened. Mm-hmm. There's all of this cognitive dissonance and confusion going on. And so there's lots of complex things happening that make it difficult to just like get over it. Right. Yeah. And, and yeah. so, and so the healing really is a process. It's a journey. And so that's why it's really important to find someone that who can work with you who is able to validate and understand your experience and know what is happening and you know can help you to see that. Mm. So Heather, when it comes to um, being exposed to a narcissist who is a family member mm. or even a parent sometimes, yeah. how do you deal with that? Is it a case of distancing yourself or completely getting rid of that person? Um, so, how do you do it? Yeah. yeah, that's a really good question. So, I mean, the data is is in across the board from, you know, psychiatrists, psychologists, therapists, doctors, like people who know survivors, um, people who know, like, the only way to truly, you know, recover is to cut them out of your life completely. Um, to go no contact, we call it where they're absolutely not involved. You don't talk, you don't see them, you don't get emails, there's no social media, like they are just, they cease to exist in your world completely. This is the ideal scenario, which is, you know, the best case for being able to to do the healing work and like move on and, and, you know, whatever. But now that's not always possible. Like you mentioned, you know, be a family member. And so like it's complex with like, family holidays and that sort of thing or children's birthdays and that sort of stuff and so it's, it becomes challenging or if you're if it's a co-parenting situation too right you can't always cut them out of your life mm-hmm. and so in that case you want to start engaging in a in something that's called going gray rock the gray rock is basically if you think of a gray rock it's very boring and unremarkable yes mm-hmm. yeah and that is what you attempt to be, a boring, unremarkable, non-reactive, with basic responses, logistics-focused, like, 
robotic responses mm-hmm. because they're not getting the supply and the attention and the fight and the, and the reactions that they're looking for. And when they don't get that, they're not getting supply. So then they take their, their games elsewhere. Um, but they really hate it when you start doing that and they, they you know, the rage and there's, there's an adjustment period of rage that happens. Um, but truly this is the only way to keep your sanity and to prevent them from further manipulating you as you would have to interact with them, right? And so um, you want to keep it limited to one form of communication only, but whether it be email only or text only or whatever, you never want to have a phone conversation because it can't be, you know, they, they don't want to be held accountable or, or trapped, right? And so they're going to try and find ways to get to you where it's not controlled, right? And so, but you you want to force that and put that boundary very firmly in place where you're only communicating in one way and the and that's it. Everything else is shut down and blocked. And you only respond to the logistics-focused things. So whether it's, you know, moving house or business-related things or, you know, visitation or, you know, whatever kind of details that are logistics-focused, you're only responding to those things and you're not talking about anything else that they say. And they will call you names, they will ask you questions, they will, you know, attempt to make you so upset and angry so that you will react and enter into this, you know, diatribe, you know, with them. And you just have to ignore it. Mm. Mm. It's basically like, it's like suffocating a flame yeah. so that the fire goes out. It's yeah. pretty, it's kind of, it's pretty much what you're doing. Yeah. Do you think it's possible for a narcissist to no longer be a narcissist? Short answer, yes. Okay. But. but. <laughs> there's, a, there's a couple of huge caveats here. Um, okay, so I'll invite you to consider a very prominent public figure example who may demonstrate very over-the-top narcissistic traits. Mm-hmm. I'll get you to think of that person. You yeah. got that in your mind? Yeah. Okay, great. <laughs> yeah. Now think of, think of that person and ask yourself, what is the likelihood that that person is going to ever admit that they have a problem? Mm-hmm. Then what is the likelihood that that person is going to agree to go see a professional mm. about this problem? Then what is the likelihood that they will tolerate sitting there and, and, and non-hostilely answering questions in like a genuine, honest way so that they can receive a diagnosis? of narcissistic personality disorder. Mm. And then ask yourself, what's the likelihood that they're going to commit to the years, and I do mean years, of therapy that it is going to take to recover? Because you are constantly fighting the ego every micro step of the way. Mm. And you you make a break, again, it's just like you're bashing your head against a wall trying to get through, and then you get this crack and they see it, Yes, okay, they're having this realization. Amazing, okay, wonderful. And then they come back next week, it's like that conversation never happened. And so it's very, very slow progress. Mm -hmm. And it's like a 12 step kind of scenario of recovery. Um, Not in terms of, it's not like an AA kind of thing, but it's Mm -hmm. like you work on this first and then you go into phase two, phase three kind of thing. You don't even get to talking about empathy for others until phase eight. You have to work through so much other um, insecurity and fear of abandonment issues, and these you got to get them to admit that to themselves first, and admit they have flaws, and admit that they're wrong, and like it's just it's so difficult. Mm. But go back to that person that you have in your mind. Yeah. Are they ever wrong? <laughs> no. Yeah. Unfortunately, <laughs> no, not. It's going to take, it would take such a long time. It would mm-hmm. take so much work from them. And yeah, a real quick anyone, yeah. And I know that telling someone that you have a problem 
it's also they might just be in denial and leave it at that. They need to recognize it themselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I would say that being a narcissist um, is more likely to be beneficial for you. Oh yeah. So if you are a narcissist, yeah, very low motivation for change. Very low motivation. Exactly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Wow. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's why they have this, like, statistic that there's something like, you know, 20 million narcissists in the world. And I'm like, no, (laughs) way more than that. Because most of them, I would say 90% of them are Mm non-diagnosed, right? Yeah. Because you can't get them to to, to admit that they're the problem in the first place, right? So they're walking around, they're among us everywhere. So, Heather, would you say that um, a narcissist would, so being a narcissist would be that you yourself have experienced some sort of trauma? Or well, it's what makes one what causes narcissism? Is mm-hmm. that what you're asking? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, it can be as a result of some kind of past trauma, um, often childhood trauma, um, but not necessarily that specifically. Um in the case of a person you may have been thinking of a moment ago, their parent was a raging narcissist. Mm-hmm. And so quite often in the in the family system, like in the role of family dynamics, there's a narcissistic parent and, you know, the unsuspecting other party who is now attached to this narcissist. Um, and then there's, you know, multiple people sometimes one child and usually multiple children. Mm. Um, one of those children, there's these, and then the children are given, they fall into these sort of labeled role. One child is always the golden child in the narcissist's eyes. And that child is told that they can do no wrong, that they're amazing, that they're fantastic, and it doesn't matter, and you don't need to listen to them, and you can do your own thing, and you step on the guy's neck to get ahead, and in the face and it doesn't matter because you're fantastic and you're not going to take no for answer you're not going to let anyone tell you what to do and you're da, 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 right and so they get kind of groomed to be like that parent mm-hmm. as was the case with a certain someone mm-hmm. because the other siblings are not that way mm-hmm. they are scapegoat children where they get blamed for being cause of all the problems or whatever. There's invisible children who basically don't exist and no matter what they do or how, how, how hard they try, how successful they are, how wonderful they do in life, they don't get any kind of recognition or or attention from the parent. Mm. So we call it invisible children. Um, and then we have handmade children who are just trying to do whatever they can to keep the peace and just like, you know, don't want to rock the boat, but just like make everything happy, make everything cool. Um, and then you have the truth teller who calls it out, and, and they end up also kind of being the scapegoat yeah. as well. And so you have these very specific roles in family dynamics. So it's a very much a, a, a situation if a trauma hasn't been the case, we're looking at like intergenerational kind of passing down one generation to the next. Mm-hmm. And this is the case in my ex's, or my, my partner's ex's family. So, so the ex is this way, as is her mother. Mm-hmm. Um, and the children are all some form of that. Mm-hmm. And so it's, a, mm-hmm. it's very, it's very, and, and, and then it gets getting passed on now to the, 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 generation of children that are young now right and so you so you watch this happen in the other families like the siblings and it's you can see the traits starting you can see it mm. and so and so it, it, it is very much learned behavior um if your parent is a narcissist so that that can be a big cause as well so but what happens if you either end up like that like they are or you end up with these other like 
I'm not enough, like, yeah. real psychological kind of issues, right? Yeah, yeah. Wow. I mean, I could talk about narcissism all day <laughs> because it's so interesting. No, it, it is. It's fascinating. It's so yeah. complex. It's multifaceted. There's yeah. lots of different pieces to it, for yeah. sure. Definitely, definitely. Um, and I just quickly want to talk about um, the book that you wrote, because you wrote a book about all of this. Um, it did. Yeah, it's called Heal from Your Narcissistic Ex, The Ultimate Guide yeah. to Safety and Sanity. Um, so just like really briefly, can you tell us what you mean by safety and sanity? So, so you know, as, as you may know already, the survivor, right, of a narcissistic relationship, when you're in it, nothing feels safe. You feel so unsafe, and your home is supposed to be your haven, it's supposed to be your safe place, it's supposed to be, but this is the source of all of the, the chaos, and, you know, what am I walking into? And they're walking on eggshells, and so you, you don't ever have that feeling of real safety, because you never know what you're going to get, you never know what's going to happen next. And so, you're on, you, your nervous system is just like, primed constantly like waiting for the other shoe to drop and you're waiting for something terrible to happen and so like your nervous system is just like in that fight flight freeze mode all the time right and so what we want is for that to go away so that you you can your nervous system your brain can realize that you're actually safe now and you're removed from that situation that that that, that threat is no longer there and to be able to like for your body to know that it doesn't have to worry anymore mm-hmm. so that's that's what i mean about safety and sanity well <laughs> we talked a lot about well you know how it makes you feel like you're going crazy yeah. right and they tell you that you're crazy even you ask yourself if you're crazy and you think you must be crazy because nobody else can see what you're going through and it's really very lonely and very very confusing and so it's reestablishing that understand. No, guess what? Good news. It's not you. It's them. Mm. You're not crazy. Yeah. So, um, so it's really it's a kind of like a step by step guide of you know understanding what happened, understanding what the impact for you was of the trauma that you went through, what those symptoms are, how to heal from those, how to you know, rebuild yourself in a healthy way, establishing boundaries, making positive connections, knowing what to look out for when you meet new people, you know, mm. and, and, you know, kind of finding your voice and standing up for yourself and feeling confident again. Wow. Wow. Thank you so much, Heather Kent, for such a interesting session mm. and very informative. Um, for just our audience, can you let us know where they can get a hold of you and um, where can, they can also get the book and just to communicate with you? Oh, absolutely. So um, they can actually uh, download my book for free, uh, both of my books actually from my website. My website's very easy. It's just my name. So it's heatherjkent.com. Mm-hmm. And so you can go to heatherjkent.com and you can um, click on resources and there's links to download my books for free and then there's also a link if people feel like they would like to connect and have um, uh, a consultation with me um, I offer those uh, for free as well so there's also a link to my calendar where you can book a time with me to kind of talk more about your situation and what's going on and and to see um, what kind of support um, is available so if people are interested in that, they can book a consultation. They can also download my books. Um, and there's also links to all my social uh, media as well on my website. So it's just heatherjkent.com. Okay. Wow. And we'll definitely put everything in the description box as well. Yes. Fantastic. Well, and thank you so much for having me. This was so wonderful. I could talk to you ladies all day. Really, it feels like <laughs> Um, if ever, if ever you uh, would, uh, would like to continue our conversation, I would love to do so. I'd be happy to come back anytime. Oh, that's awesome. Great. Well, thank you so much. And um, yeah, thank you to the listeners. Thank you guys for coming and supporting. Don't forget, as usual, to comment, like, and subscribe. And um, 
tell your friends. Maybe you just heard something that will remind you about um, someone who may be dating someone who's a narcissist or who has a narcissist person in their life. And um, maybe you can, you know, help them, help them to, to get through it. Um, <clears throat> if not by watching this episode, then by contacting Heather. Thanks, guys. Bye. Bye. <laughs> In the darkest hour, I wanna come for you. I know you've been alone. Oh.